Hey, good morning. Is this uh, the third good morning you've heard here today? Or fourth? You can get a lot of, you get an extra good morning. And, hey, welcome back, you guys. Good to see you. Um, my name's Chris. I'm the pastor here, and it is great to see all of you here today. Today, my job is to introduce a guy named Mark Stromberg. I'm going to be doing that a little bit. Um, he, is a, he is a guy who believed in this church before I believed in this church. Now, let me tell you the story really quick. This is a very abbreviated version of it. But six years ago, about six years ago, Jill Erickson uh, said, you know, you should check out this covenant family of churches. And I never heard of this covenant family of churches before, but she said, you know, you should really, you should really check this out. And so um, I said, well, where should I start? And she said, well, talk to this guy who used to be one of my pastors, um, Pastor Rick Carlson. So I met with Pastor Rick Carlson. And after talking with him, he said, you know who you really need to talk to? You need to talk to a guy named Mark Stromberg. Well, after a couple of conversations, I, I quickly found out that um, in Hollywood, there are six degrees of Kevin Bacon. In the covenant, there's just two degrees of Mark Stromberg. He is a guy who grew up in the covenant. He's been a pastor in the covenant, served in all kinds of different capacities. He went to, he's a graduate of Minnehaha too. Uh, so he, he grew up in the covenant. And after talking with Mark, after hearing more about this amazing family of churches and hearing his passion for this group, it wasn't long before Laura and I realized, you know, our next step is going to be with these, these brothers and sisters as we go forward. Well, as we started talking, I said, okay, now let's, let's maybe look at a couple churches that, that have openings that are covenant churches. And, and he introduced Laura and I to this idea of starting a new church. And Laura and I, we thought that was crazy. We didn't, you know, no reference point for that in our life. It just sounded insane. But, but he kept encouraging us and was one of the most influential people um, who helped us to say, you know what, okay, I think this is what God is saying, and we're going to go forward with it. So he's been absolutely, absolutely instrumental in the foundation of this church. He currently serves as the superintendent of our conference, which means for the covenant, we're broken into different regions like many are. So he it provides servant leadership for churches, 144 churches um, here in Minnesota, in parts of Wisconsin, Iowa, North and South Dakota, and then everybody in the, uh, all the conference superintendents divvy up Alaska. So he's got some churches up in Alaska, I believe, too. So, so that's great. Well, it's his first visit here with us this morning. He's a busy guy, and, and it's, excuse me, his first visit with us this morning, so make sure that you, you make him feel, feel welcome and tell him how much you love your pastor. Well, today, today he's going to be teaching to us out of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, starting with verse 32. And as we're turning there, uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, we would love for you to go home with one free today. You don't have to sign up. You don't have to put in a suggested donation, anything like that. There's a stack of Bibles over there at that welcome table. We encourage you to just take one. And thank you for those of you who've been doing that. We must, I, I got informed we went through another box of Bibles. So that's fantastic. And if you're new to the Bible or haven't ever really dug into it before and you'd love to talk about you know that, let me know, and I'd, I'd love to, to maybe give you some ideas as you get started reading this amazing book. Well, we're going to be looking today at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17, and we're going to be looking at a familiar story, but Mark's bringing some great, fresh insights today. I'm starting with verse 32, and this is the account of David uh, going to battle with uh, Goliath. And so David said to King Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. 
Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're just a young man. He has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword and took over, uh, sword over the tunic and tried walking around because was, he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul. Because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. And then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and went with this sling in his hand and approached the Philistine. The story continues on. There's a lot of trash talking. If you want to read some great trash talking, some good lines you can use on others like, Who am I that you come at me with sticks? Um, They're in there, okay? But we're going to skip ahead to... uh, Verse 57, after the battle. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him before Saul, and David still holding the Philistine's head. Yes, that's in the Bible. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan um, became one in spirit with David. He loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent David on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to greet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me, only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Let's pray for Mark as he comes forward. Father, we do. We want to pray for Mark. We thank you for the message that you've given him. Lord, this is a message that relates to us as a church. This is a message that relates to us as individuals, every one of us. So, Lord, we pray that you will give us ears to hear. What is it you want to say to us as a church? What is it you want to say to us as individuals? Give us ears, God, so we can hear your message to us. Give us hearts now to receive with humility the things that you want to say. So, Lord, speak. As you did in that first service, speak through Mark here to us and give us ears, give us hearts so we can respond to this message. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please join me in welcoming Mark Schomburg? Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Well, it's great to uh, see all of you. It reminds me of the old uh, story. The bishop came to a church that sat about 2,000 people. There were only about 20 people in the auditorium. He was kind of mad, and he leaned over to the pastor during uh, uh, singing and whispered and said, Didn't you tell him I was coming? 
And the pastor said, no, but they must have found out anyway. <laughs> okay, that's it. That's enough for the dumb jokes. But uh, anyways, it is uh, great to be with you this morning and to be able to share uh, from God's Word. Uh, again, I uh, really am a uh, product of the ministry of uh, the Northwest Conference and of the Evangelical Covenant Church. I was staring in the first service. I actually came to faith in Christ up at Covenant Pines Bible Camp, which some of your kids now and maybe some of you have been up there on a retreat. And actually, my second year of Trailblazer Camp, so I was probably like about a 10-year-old, I felt called in the ministry. And uh, I just, I remember sitting uh, over by a window looking out at the lake, and, and the person who was uh, speaking for the week said, you know, someday God is going to call some of you into full-time Christian service. We used to hear that a lot, people around my age, which was a wonderful challenge to put in front of kids. And I remember looking out the window, and just with absolute clarity of thought, I just thought, that's me. I just know that's me, and I don't know why I knew it wasn't because I was a well-behaved boy, because I wasn't. I had a lot of nervous energy, uh, but, but I've uh, said it this way. It was almost like having an adult brain in a little boy's body for about two seconds, and I just had clarity that the Lord was, uh, had a call on my life, totally His grace, not because I merited, obviously, on any level, and uh, then I went back to goofing around with my friends again. But just for a moment, it was crystal clear. So when I go speak at Covenant Pines, I'll still go sit in the same spot, look out the window, and it's absolutely like it was yesterday, though it was 45, 46 years ago. So I'm grateful to be able to serve in this position. As Chris said, we've got about 140-plus churches in the Northwest Conference. We also have five Bible camps, Covenant Pines being one of them. Uh, we have a couple retirement communities. We've got three covenant-enabling residences, group homes uh, for developmentally disabled young adults. And actually, I have a son... Uh, at Friendship Place, which is on the campus of Rice Creek uh, Covenant Church. So I'm blessed to be part of a, a church group that, uh, that says, you know what, we're going to uh, extend the grace of God uh, to all kinds of folks. So it's an honor to be able to serve. I am a Minnehaha graduate, long time ago. And uh, I was saying in the early service, too, that <clears throat> there are still a few teachers uh, that were uh, that were teaching when I was there, believe it or not. They were new teachers, and obviously now they're very close to retirement. But one is a woman named Janet Johnson, an English teacher, and now here uh, heading the, you know, leading the organization that owns Minnehaha Academy. The Northwest Conference actually owns Minnehaha Academy. I'll walk down the hall, and, and she'll see me, and I'll say, Hello, Mrs. Johnson, and she'll say, Hello, Mark. And then she laughs. I think she thinks this is funny that all of a sudden here one of her early students now uh, has the opportunity to serve. But it's great to be with you. Um, you know what? The local church is the front line of ministry. The local church can do most of the things better. But not everything. Uh, this is why we form as association of churches because there are some things we can do better together. We can support missionaries better Together, Most of our churches don't say, you know what, we will underwrite a missionary for the next 30 years, 100% out of our church. Most churches don't do that. Maybe there are a few churches that could, but most don't. But you know what, as we pool resources, we are able to send missionaries. Most of our churches wouldn't say, you know what, we can own and operate a Bible camp by ourselves. But you know what, when churches join together, we own and operate Bible camps. Same thing with covenant enabling residences, group homes. Same thing with church planting, and this should be fresh in your mind's eye. The reason this church was able to begin, besides having a wonderful pastor, 
But the reason this church was able to begin is because there are other churches that have been around a, a long time that said, you know what, we're going to pool resources in order to start new churches. So we exist to resource our local churches, to serve our churches, but we also exist to unite our churches together in service. So I just want to lay this out before you because we certainly are dependent upon our church's understanding of vision for that. And even as your church has been blessed by that, we would hope uh, as time goes on that you would continue to see your role in being a blessing as we continue on the ministry. Over on the table to my left on the back, I just put a couple sheets. One is a little bit of a summary sheet of the types of things we do at the Northwest Conference office. The other talks about our ministry priorities. And our ministry priorities are congregational vitality, church planting, and children, youth, and family. And this kind of unpacks, you know, why these are our ministry priorities. So if you are interested, there are a few sheets over there that you could take. We appreciate your support. And the reality is all we ask is that our local churches act and serve in the same way that they would expect their own families. You're like one of our families. We have like 145 families in the Northwest Conference Covenant Church. And, and in the same way that your local church is dependent upon your individual families supporting and, and serving, certainly we need our church families. Because we know that the church of Jesus Christ, our faith is bigger than simply me and Jesus with my Bible in my bedroom. Now it's partly that, but it's bigger than that. It's also bigger than me, my family, and my local church. And by the way, it's bigger than the Northwest Conference. It's bigger than the Evangelical Covenant Church. It's bigger than all of these things, the things that God is doing in our world. And yet he calls us to come and to partner with him. So thanks uh, for your uh, support, the things that you can do to help us continue to propel our joint ministry together, even as we seek uh, to serve you. Um, I would ask that you would bow your heads with me for prayer. Father God, I ask that you would breathe life into this message, driving it deep into our hearts and into our minds, causing it to burn within us, causing it to change uh, not only how we think, but quite frankly, how we act. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? These are strong words. We don't necessarily like these words. And uh, lest we are tempted to explain these words away, Scripture gives us storyline upon storyline to drive home the point. And one such story is the, the story that Pastor Chris read this morning, this morning. It's not so much the story of David as it is the story of Saul. King Saul, king of Israel. One whose heart shriveled. One whose heart became envious and jealous and hate-filled. Oh, it didn't begin that way, but that, began, that, that became its final destination after a long, dark journey of resentment and self-absorbing pride. Earlier, things had been much different, you know. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 21, it says that God directed Samuel to anoint Saul king. And so Samuel goes to do this. What was Saul's response at the time? You can read it. It was one of humility. He couldn't believe that God would so choose him. In essence, he says, how can this be? I'm from this particular tribe, and I'm from this 
family in this particular tribe. What he was saying is, I'm from like the runtiest tribe, and I'm from like the least significant family in the runtiest tribe. How, how can this be that God would use him? Well, God did, and so he was anointed by Samuel as king. And, and it says in chapter 10, verse 9, that God gave to Samuel another kind of heart. Another kind of heart. And, 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 Sam, and Saul began to prophesy. Think about this. Saul had everything going for him. Saul was a great king. Saul was a great warrior. But did you know that Saul is also considered one of the Old Testament prophets? We learned this when we were in seminary. There aren't a lot of other kings that were prophets too, but he was. So this guy, this was the triple crown. He had it all going for him. He was a king, he was a warrior, and he was also a prophet to the point where people who knew him, people who knew his family said, what in the world is going on? What has come over Saul, son of Kish? Well, he had great success. But in time on his kingly journey, the tide began to turn. You see, Saul became full of himself. He thought he was the star, and no doubt people had been telling him that he was the star. But but he took it to heart. And you know how in the Lord's Prayer we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done? Well, Saul had a little different twist on that. It wasn't really a prayer, but Saul thought, My kingdom come, my will be done. And ultimately we see a tormented, fragmented, pathetic shell of a man. One who lost everything. He lost his relationship with Samuel, his mentor. He lost the respect of the people. He lost the respect of his officers. He lost the very kingdom that he said he loved. He lost his family. And the more he tried to grasp these things, the less of it he had. Kind of like trying to hold on to water. If you cup your hands, you can hold some. But if you, if you squeeze your fist tight, you don't have much left in there. And in 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says these sobering and frightening words, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. You see, God gave him up and said, fine, if that's the way you want it, so be it, but count me out. A king who started out so well, and yet now it says in Scripture that God regretted ever having made him king in the first place. And yet he had started He was humble, heart of gratefulness to the living God, the least of the least. But now we see a king, now we see a leader who was jealous. We see a a king, a leader who was threatened and angry and bitter and fearful and paranoid. One who sees David, this young punk, and he resents him for his successes. I mean, his own son Jonathan loved him. His daughter Michael loved him. Uh, So did the officers. So did the people. And they sing to Saul what became the vilest of all anthems. Saul has killed his thousands, but... You know, whenever you hear the word but, there's something else going on. You'll go, oh, this is the part we're not going to like. Saul has killed his thousands, but David, wow, his tens of thousands. And Saul was mortified. It says in the King James that this this refrain galled Saul. And he laments their song in chapter 18, verse 8, and observes, What is left for him to have save the kingdom itself? My kingdom, he thought. I built this. They owe me. I was here first. Wah, wah, wah. But this was Saul's response. And so the Bible tells us that he kept his eye on David 
from that point on. You see, David was doing too well. Oh, it, it benefited Saul for David to do well, but, but there's a tipping point where now all of a sudden this was not in Saul's best interest that this kid was doing so well. David was increasing in influence and in authority and in stature and power and influence. He was increasing in these things and it, allowed, and it caused Saul to have to face the awful truth that he, in fact, was decreasing in these very things. And so what does Saul do? Well, he does what any healthy, missional, mature person would do. He tries to kill him. Tongue-in-cheek, don't try that at home. And what does it say in the King James? I'll pin him to the wall. I'll pin him to the wall. And uh, we say that, uh, that David flees after having dodged a spear twice. The heart, it's deceitful above all things. And it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Think about this. Saul as a king, Saul as a leader, Saul as a follower of God had received blessing upon blessing from the hand of an abundantly giving God, but it simply was not enough. And it's never enough because a self-centered, greedy, envious heart is like a bottomless pit. It's like a black hole where the blessing of God, the matter of God's blessing just gets sucked right in, consuming everything in its path, always craving more, never enough, never satisfied. You know, once upon a time, Saul would have been ecstatic if Samuel had told him when he was anointed king back when he was still humble and grateful. If Saul had said, Samuel had said, by the way, Saul, someday you will have so much success that the women... The ladies, the girls, they're going to be out in the streets singing songs about you. He would have been humble. He wouldn't have believed it. But now, these were fighting words. And his spirit shriveled. And his heart hardened. You know what? I don't like this guy. I don't like Saul. But even more, I don't want to be like this guy. Don't you agree? I don't like this guy, but even more, I don't want to be like this guy. I don't want to become like Saul, and I know that you don't want to become like Saul either. I pray so for your sake individually, but you know what? Also for the sake of your family, but also for the sake of your church. Because even as pride and self-centeredness destroyed Saul and the effectiveness of his influence over the kingdom... A bitter, ungrateful, envious, resentful, jealous, threatened heart can destroy not only us, but it can poison the very church that we say we love. And, uh, you know, if we fall into this, uh, and this can kind of come naturally to us sometimes, you know what, what happens? Maybe as a church we start comparing ourselves to other churches. And, and we could become distressed by the comparison as, as they're credited with tens of thousands. And, well, we only have thousands, or most of our churches only have hundreds. Quite frankly, a lot of our churches out in the, our town of country churches, a lot of them just have tens. Well, it would be pretty discouraging if you're a church of 28 people and you're looking at Wooddale. You know, it would be a little, little discouraging. Um, you know, but this can happen. We start to compare ourselves individually or as a church to others, and then we become distressed by the comparison, measuring our worth based on how we measure up. Or individually, if not that, 
we can fall into this same pattern or rut because we can start to think that, you know what, this really is my kingdom. My local church, it's here to serve me and my family. I've been here a long time. I'm one of the first people who came to Emmanuel Covenant. Therefore, I have spiritual squatter's rights. And if we're not careful, we can fall into that. We don't mean to, but it can happen. And by the way, I watch it happen in churches. One of the things, by the way, I've had to say to some of our new churches when they move into their first building and they have an open house for the community and they're all excited, I sit down with the leaders and I say, I'm just going to forewarn you, here's what you're going to see. The very people, maybe even some of you leaders, but the very people that are helping you set up, get the food, doing all these things to start the church, once people come in and actually start joining, they will have a tendency to resent some of these people. Why? I've been here, I've been setting up chairs for three years. We, I've been late nights at meetings. We all have given sacrificially to even build this building. Do you mean another family can walk in the door, take a look around, eat our free food and say, yeah, I think I'll join. Now their vote, vote counts the same as mine? There's something in us that says, wait a second here, as we find ourselves losing place. Well, this can happen to us if we're not careful. This church is here to meet my needs. This is my kingdom. My will should be done, even as it became all about Saul. Well, you continue to read Saul's story, you'll find that he became more and more deceived. He became self-deceived. Samuel confronted him several times and said, Saul, God said to do this, you did this. Explain yourself. And instead of owning up, what does Saul do? He tries to rationalize. He tries to say, well, Samuel, with all due respect, you and God are wrong. Actually, I did this for very, very good spiritual reasons. He became self-deceived. And he became a hollow, pathetic, forsaken man. Friends, I don't like Saul, but even more, I don't want to be like Saul. I don't want to end up that way, and I know that you don't want to either. So, a gentleman, a Roman Catholic gentleman named Richard Rohr, R-O-H-R, and he's written uh, some reflections on male spirituality for men. But you know what? What he has to say uh, goes way beyond you know, a message for men or for boys. Uh, and what he has to share really is for all of us, and it maybe helps us to find more clearly where we are on our own life's path to understand how we're responding to where we're at. And, and in his writings, and by the way, this is something that completely escaped Saul because he was not self-aware. In his writings, Rohr suggests that the language of the first half of life is the language of ascent, A-S-C-E-N-T. The language of ascent, the journey of ascent, Ascending. You know, when we're young, we speak of the, the, everything, the sky's the limit. We say to kids that graduate, what do you want to be? At that point, it's pretty wide open, isn't it? Is it as wide open for me right now? There's a good chance I will never become a pilot or a brain surgeon. Pretty good chance at this point. You see, what has happened, as I've gotten older, my options have shrunk, whether I like it or not. But when you're young, it's wide open. And so for young people, we, we think in terms of achieving and winning and growing and, and being strengthened. 
Uh, we think of growing in vitality. We think of growing in capacity. We put a kid up against a wall and mark the wall and put the date. Six months later, we do it again. Where's the mark going to be? Further up the wall. And we mark it. And that's the normal and natural order of things. And in fact, if the mark was down lower, what would you do? You would call the doctor because you would say something's not right here. Uh, someone not, should not be being reduced in stature at this point. Well, you put some of us against the wall and uh, wait a few years and do it again. What might you see? little different thing going on there. But when you're younger, this is the natural order of things. Um, I grew up at First Covenant Church downtown Minneapolis. In fact, Mary Lochner, I'm not to put her on the spot, but her dad was my pastor, uh, Paul Freiling. Paul and Gladys, his wife, are t- truly are two of the heroes in my life. Um, but I grew up at that church and was formed in the faith of that church. Well, I lived out in Maple Grove. We're right in the middle of going through a major revitalization uh, down there. So my wife, Terry, and I moved downtown a year and a half ago and uh, moved into a condo right by the church because we said if we're going to be part of this revitalization, we have to be here. And by the way, I did share in the early service, uh, right now on Easter we had 278 people. doesn't sound like a lot, but you have to remember that four years ago, one Sunday I counted in a sanctuary that seats almost 1,600. One Sunday we had 65 people, 40 over the age of 75. Okay, you don't have to think too long on that one, do you? All right. We had 278 people at Easter. Terry and I counted 21 people that would have been in the church three years ago out of 278. But but it hasn't been an easy thing. Revitalization, believe me, is not an easy thing. A lot of feeling. People, you know, banging around the walls in terms of their own emotions about what they're gaining or losing in all of this. But we we moved downtown. Well, when we did that, we had to get rid of two-thirds of everything we own, and so we gave things to our daughter and our nephews and nieces, etc. You know, so, so one of our nephews would get a nice table and he would replace, you know, a junky table that he had. What were we doing when we got rid of stuff? Downsizing. What were they doing? Upgrading. Okay, you get the drift. This is the natural, normal order of life. And so Rohr suggests that even as the language of the first half of life is the, the language of ascent, just like a ball is thrown up in the air and it seems to hang for a bit, but it doesn't, doesn't hang very long, does it? What does it do? It starts coming down, so Rohr suggests, ouch, that the language of the second half of life is the language of descent. The journey of descent. Jim Fredheim used to say this. Remember, it's kind of morbid, but it's true. He said, remember, the first and last utensil that many people will use in life is a spoon. There's truth to that. So, the language, the journey of descent, this second stage, and you know what? That which worked well in the first half of life can actually become toxic if we're not self-aware, resulting in a self-absorbed egocentricity and a a resentment toward other people, toward toward newer people, you know, where we try to continue to ascend, climbing, climbing at all costs, stepping on anything or anyone that gets in our way. And we can become, if we're not careful, angry and resentful, bitter controllers. We can resist new ideas. We can resist new people. Uh, These things that pose a threat to our own 
continued climb. Sound familiar? That was Saul. One who misused his power, and therefore one who became dangerous. You know, I have to confess that I'm I'm speaking to myself here by nature, and I know this about myself, and readily confess it to you, my brothers and sisters. By nature, I'm a controller. Uh, I'm an organized person. I'm a perfectionist. uh, And there are some good parts to that. But there's a downside, a dark side to that. I like to plan my work and work my plan. That's what I am. And so I have to listen to these words in my own life. By nature, I am a quarterback. Uh, That's actually what I was at, actually, at Minnehaha. I was a quarterback. My role does not allow me to be the quarterback anymore. My role says that I have to be a quarterback coach. Chris is a quarterback. I am a coach. It would be inappropriate for me to say, well, just give me the ball. Okay? Not not my role. Yeah, yeah. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah." Remind me of that later if I'm, you know, okay. But it would... But you get what I'm saying. It's time for me to say, how do I pour into our pastors coming behind me, not having to be the star, not having to be the hero, not having to have my plans fulfilled, but to say, what do you need from me? This is what this is about. Rohr goes on to say in his writings that great spiritual leaders, those who are truly healthy, those who are truly mature in life and in faith are able to enter into a different type of wisdom for the second half of life, this journey of descent. But you know what, Saul, he would have none of it because it would have required from him the things that he no longer possessed, a humble and open and grateful heart, the ability to step aside, the ability to let other people ascend to their rightful places of influence and leadership, deferring to the dreams and aspirations of other people. You see, this language, this journey of descent, it doesn't always come naturally to those of us who think we ought to be on the way up or still on top. And so sometimes we learn it only after we've been kicked around the block a few times, maybe through illness, maybe through failure, maybe through the loss of a job, maybe through rejection, Uh, where we have to face the brutal fact of our own powerlessness. The, The journey of descent, it drives us to get in touch with our limitations and our weaknesses. It forces us to realize that some things will always remain beyond our grasp. Some of our dreams will remain just that. Not every dream is fulfilled in life, is it? Some of our dreams will never be fulfilled. And you know what? That can be very disappointing when we get in touch with our own limitations and with our own inability to continue to ascend. And for some of us, it's brutal. And so like Saul, if we are not careful, if we are not self-aware, we can find ourselves becoming resentful and resistant, maybe even to others within our own church. Because they are rightfully on the journey of ascent. And the truth be told, while that used to be our journey, that is, and that is where we would still like to be, we are not. And the more we get in touch with that, the more frustrated we can become if we're not careful, if we're not self-aware. And lest this sound like I'm speaking solely chronology here, I'm not. This is not pitting young people versus 
old people, myself now being more of an old person than a young person. That's not what this is about. This is about being a servant in all of our relationships, regardless of our age. This is about saying that you could have a, a, a 21-year-old kid working with your 14-year-olds at the church. In that relationship, the 21-year-old has to have the wherewithal and the, the awareness to say, you know what? This relationship, this is about the 14-year-old. It's not about me. The 21-year-old has to be willing to take the journey of descent, though they're only 21. You could have a 48-year-old person in the church who's been a Christian for 45 years. You could have an 85-year-old starting to come to the church who's new to the faith. And these people build a relationship. In that relationship, in terms of faith, the 48-year-old has to be able to say in their own mind's eye, for me, with my new friend, my new 85-year-old friend, they must increase. I must decrease. So while certainly chronology can play into this, it's not solely about that. It's, it's, it's much greater than that. But you know, for those of us that may struggle with this uh, in life, there's good news because unlike Saul, the Bible tells us that if we yield these frustrations, if we yield these bitternesses to God beyond forgiving us, He will use these very things to drive us deeper in Him to a place of maturity, of real maturity, of Christian maturity where we act like grown-ups even when we don't get our own way. A place of inner strength, a, a place where we can become true servant leaders rather than having to always be the hero. Uh, we no longer have to compare ourselves individually or as a church to others. It doesn't matter because our identity is in the cross of Jesus Christ and in nothing more. Uh, we don't determine our worth uh, by the results of the comparison or, or by how we think other people perceive us. You see, that was Saul's problem once upon a time. Killing thousands would have seemed great to him, but no longer because now as he compared himself based upon David's tens of thousands, he was no longer content. And that was tragic. Because what David needed during his time of ascent, what he needed during that part of the journey, he needed a king who was mature. He needed a king who could mentor him and would pour into him because the king rightly understood where each was on their journey. Saul descending, David ascending. Sound familiar? Think of the Gospels. Early on in the Gospels, John the Baptist is out baptizing. And no doubt religious leaders went out to him. And uh, no doubt to try to, you know, get him in the ribs. Said, you know, John, uh, you, know, you're, you're, you and your people, your disciples have baptized all kinds of people. But there's this new person. His name is Jesus. His disciples are baptizing way more than your disciples ever did. What do you have to say to that? thinking that, you know, get a response. What was his response? He must increase. I must decrease. You see, John understood where each was on their journey. John was a mature servant of the living God. Rohr says this, and I quote, It takes wise old kings and mellow old grandfathers, and I would add grandmothers, to teach those that are younger the way of passion and patience and compassion and humility. 
And again, this is not just about chronology. Not too long ago, I picked up outside my door in a hotel, the USA Today newspaper, and in the life section, the article is entitled, Tired of Baby Boomers. Tired of Baby Boomers, and it's talking to people underneath the baby boom generation. And basically, in the article, they're saying, we sort of wish the baby boomers, of which I'm right in the middle of it, we sort of wish they would just go away. Why? Because they said the baby boomers are acting so threatened that they won't share what they know with us out of their own fear for where they are on life's journey, basically. That they are protecting knowledge, they are protecting information, and because they are technological immigrants rather than technological natives, think about the difference there, all right? My grandpa, by the way, came from Sweden. He looked like he was an American, and he became a U.S. citizen, but he looked like he was from this country until he opened his mouth. Then you said, oh, he's learned to adapt, but this really isn't him. He, he's learning to, to cope. That's different than my dad. If you said, well, what are you, Dick? Uh, you know, meaning heritage, he'd say, I'm an American. You know, I mean, he just like that ticked him off that people were going to try and get him to say he was Swedish. I'm an American. You know, like this kind of thing. All right? There's a difference. And technology, when it comes to baby boomers, we may be learning, but we speak with an accent. Younger people, look at our kids. They don't speak with any accent. This is who they are. And they're saying in the article that the boomers are responding uh, viscerally out of this, fearing the fact that the world is leaving them behind and they don't know what it means. So this is, again, this isn't about elderly people. This is about all of us. We need to learn these things. Otherwise, um, our days can be filled with paranoia and negativity. And yet, you know what? If we do accept this journey of descent, our greatest days for ministry, our greatest impact for the kingdom, actually may be ahead of us, not behind us. Think back, those of you who were raised in churches, think back to the older people, whatever their age, they all looked old when you're little, but they, maybe they weren't that old, but they were old to you. Think of the people that influenced you. It was people that took the time on a Sunday to come up to you and shake your hand like you actually existed, not just those who were putting up with you. You think of those that were willing to pour into your life as kids. Those were the heroes, and they were maybe having an influence on you far beyond anything they thought they were doing because they seem to navigate their own lives graciously. This is what God calls us to do. But Saul, he poisoned the very kingdom that he claimed to cherish. Well, two options very quickly. When we get to this midpoint in life, whatever it is and whatever relationship, we have two options um, if we don't handle it well. Uh, no, option number one, uh, we shut down. Uh, we take our toys and go home. It's kind of like, you know what, if I can't make the decisions, um, then I'm not going to play anymore. Wah, wah, wah. I, you know, I, if they're not, they're not listening to me, and what that's code for, usually when I deal with church conflicts, that's code for they're not doing what I say. Okay, they're not listening to me, they're not hearing me. That's what some people do, sadly. And when I'm no longer, uh, you know, the, the, the main, main player, I shut down and I take my toys and go home. One option. Not a good option, but what people do. Option number two is people try to keep running desperately. And either way, quite frankly, it leads us to a world where people no longer age very well. And because of that, they actually have very little to offer those that are younger still. After all, they're still trying to be young themselves. 
and those that actually are younger are seen more as, well, competition for positions of leadership in making decisions, uh, positions of authority. Um, and, and so we can tend to want to question them on everything they do and, and, and undermine decisions. You see, if we don't enter into this journey of descent gracefully, we become emotionally and intellectually and spiritually unavailable to those that are younger than us. Or we become painfully irrelevant. It's kind of like going into a restaurant after church today and let's say as you're sitting there with your family, you see a, an older guy, well, someone who looks like me. Um, but his shirt's unbuttoned down to here. He's got a lot of, you know, wearing a lot of chains. A lot of big diamond pinky rings. And, well, he's wearing something on his head that doesn't quite fit right. And, uh, and he dro- drove up in a red convertible sports car. And he, he's coming into the restaurant with a, a young woman on his arm. Seems like it would be maybe around his daughter's age. But somehow you get the vibe that it probably isn't his daughter. What do you think of that guy? I can tell because you're all showing in your expressions what you think of the guy. And you whisper to the person next to you, look at that guy. It's pathetic, isn't it? It's painful, and it's funny. And the sad part is everyone in the restaurant knows it, don't they? Except who? The guy. He thinks he's hip. He thinks he's happy. He thinks he's fooling the rest of us. You see, we can all look at this guy and say, this guy ought to be, uh, you know, living the journey of descent. Uh, on some level here, and yet he's trying to live something that just isn't the natural order of things. And so he becomes painfully irrelevant. But if not irrelevant, dangerous. And that was Saul, because Saul was in what? A position of leadership. Saul had the authority to pin David to the wall. And yet he could have been such a great king. He could have been such a great mentor, such a great leader had his heart remained humble and grateful and soft. If he had graciously accepted the journey of descent, what an example he could have been to David. What a healthy missional example of what it means to walk with God. Emmanuel Covenant Church, you know what? You have Davids in your midst. Uh, some of your Davids are men of all ages. Some of your Davids are women. Some of your Davids are young boys. And some of them are young girls. Release them and bless them for ministry in this place. And that cannot happen if in this place or any other there's the spirit of Saul. Because the spirit of Saul will crush and resent and hold down and suppress the ascent of other people. The spirit of Saul will be threatened by the emergence of new people, new ideas, new strategies, new decisions. And you know what? I pray that in my own journey of descent, I can tell others. I can tell guys like Chris, I pray that I'm always able to say, I'm praying for you. I love you. Um, I'm supporting you. I'll support decisions you make, even though I don't fully understand them. I will give generously to undergird the vision God has placed on your hearts. I will not stand in your way. I, I will not squash you out of an act of self Preservation, just because I'm uptight about things happening in my own life. Neither will I abandon you. For the vision God has given some of you, and think about this, those that are younger, the vision God gives to younger people is actually going to be their vision to carry out. Um, and far be it from me to, to, to 
make a decision that undermines the very people that are going to have to carry it out and saddle them with a vision that was not of their choosing. Friends, let's each one of us commit to putting away the spirit of Saul once and for good in our lives and in our churches. Rather, let's foster the spirit of John the Baptist. Just in closing, when David uh, went out to uh, fight Saul, or excuse me, fight Goliath, Saul thought he was nuts. He said, you can't fight this guy. You're just a kid, and he's been a fighting man since he was a kid. David persisted, probably shamed Saul a little bit that here you've got this young kid, you know, willing to do this, and here I am, this mighty king warrior, and I'm pulling back. Finally, Saul relents, and what does Saul do? Gives him his tunic, gives him really the king's armor. Now think about this for a moment. We read over these verses so quickly. Gives him the king's armor. David puts them on. Now this is the king's armor. The king didn't give his armor to everybody. Puts them on. David walks around, can barely move. Kind of like when you were a little kid and your mama dressed you up to play out in winter. And that's why you only made snow angels. That's really all you could do. Okay, because you're kind of walking around like this. Puts them on. He takes them off and says to the king... No, thank you. Excuse me. And I have no doubt that this was the first arrow that pierced Saul's heart of egocentricity and pride. I give you my armor, armor that has served me well for years, and you say that you don't want it. You say that you don't need it. And I doubt David was doing this to be disrespectful. Rather, I think David was understanding that this is a different day. It's a different type of battle. It requires a different method different weapon, different strategy. Translate that to our churches. It's a different day, friends. It requires different methods, different strategies, all of these things. Well, I don't want to be like Saul, and I know you don't want to either. So to the Davids among us, I say, what is God calling you to do? What do you need? How can we help? What do you need to learn from us? But also, how are we hindering where God is leading you out of our own need for control or position, or maybe anxiety about where we are on our own life's journey. To the Davids I say, kill your tens of thousands. Kill your tens of thousands. And may God give the rest of us the grace to stand alongside of you and rejoice rather than stand in your way. Amen. Amen.